This morning, go ahead. We've got a lot of scripture to get through, and so I want to encourage you to do this. I want to encourage you to to grab a Bible. Um, You can do this on your phone if you'd like, but I'd also encourage you to grab an actual physical, I call it analog Bible. In fact, we bought a couple of cases of ESV Bibles and stuck them in the pew or the chairs in front of you. And um, here's the thing. If you don't have a Bible, um, that is a gift to you. We encourage you to take it, write your name in it, read it every day, um, bring it with you when you come to worship with us. But there are ESV Bibles in the the chairs underneath you in front of you. And that is one of our gifts to you as well. So you're going to open up to Matthew chapter 26. We are in this series, To the Cross and Beyond, and what we're doing is we're following the narrative of Scripture, um, basically the last week of Jesus' life, heading up to that moment where he's crucified and then resurrected again. And so we're looking at characters in the Scriptures um, and how this story plays out. And, you know, if you've been in church some of your life, you're probably somewhat familiar, but here's the thing that I've learned as I get older. I am always learning new things. There's always something there more that I can learn, and I can read the same story, and I've read these stories, and once again, God is teaching me something. And so, um, open up to Matthew chapter 26, and what I hope to do is to walk us through these scriptures, and there's two things I really want us to look like, but I'll get to those later. Have you ever felt like your life is out of control? Ever felt that way? Yesterday? Think back through those moments in your life where you felt like everything was falling apart. Um, I can remember in high school a couple moments (laughs) where things seemed to be falling apart. Um, I can remember when my mom passed away. I remember everything about that day, and it felt like the world just stopped. You probably have loved ones that have passed away in your life. You've probably had situations. I remember times when the car broke down. We've blown up two engines in my family in the last five years. And I remember one of those times, um, Christine had all the kids, and we have to buy a big car to fit all our kids in it. And she called me at work, um, and she was in Winsville, and it was a hot day, and the car broke on the side of the highway, on Highway 70. And I am scrambling to figure out, what am I going to do? Now, we ended up getting the car towed, and all the kids packed in my truck, um, not legally, but we... Got in there, and I got him home, and, you know, by God's grace, we made it through. But it's in those moments where life seems to be spiraling out of control, and oftentimes we wonder, God, what is your plan? What is happening in this moment? And I think if we look at the story here, we will think the same thing. We will think it looks, and of course, we're on this side of history, but in the moment, it would look as if all the world was spiraling out of control. And so what I want to do is I want to read through these sections, and I want to highlight these characters, not so that we can relate with them, although there is one person we can relate with that I'll get to at the very end. But I want us to relate with with him. I want us to see how Jesus maneuvered this last couple of hours before he was crucified. And I want us to look at the characters because they show us how all the odds were stacked against Jesus. And yet he was victorious. So open up to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to begin in verse 47. Now this is on the heels of what John talked about last week. And Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was in this dark moment. 
He's praying to the Father in anguish about what's to happen, about taking on the wrath of God for the sins of the world. He's got his friends there. They can't stay awake. And then here's where we pick up in verse 47. While he was still speaking. Okay, so Jesus, last week in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says this, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, Do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus. They laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand. We know this is Peter from Luke's account. And he drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So the first person I want to look at is Judas. There's really not a whole lot written about Jesus, but we know this, that Jesus chose him and Jesus had him in his inner circle. And we don't know all of Jesus' intentions of his heart, but we do know this. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that he would be the son of perdition, that he would be the one that would betray Jesus. And when he says friend, because he came up to Jesus and says, Rabbi, with the intentions of his heart to betray him for 30 pieces of silver, and he's called him teacher. And Jesus calls him friend. Now I want to be clear, the word friend here, as I looked it up and studied, is not quite the friend of the phileo, the brotherly love. This is the friend when Jesus told the parable of um, the workers in the field. Do you remember this parable? And the, worker, uh, the, the, the owner of the field is looking for someone to come in and work the field, and he has no one, so he goes out, and it's early in the morning, he says, hey, will you come and work my field, and I'll pay you a talent? He says, sure, I'm looking for work. So he hires him in the, 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 the say, 6 o'clock. And then at 9 o'clock, he goes and finds a few more people, and he says the same thing. And 12, and then 2, and then the end of the day, with an hour left, he goes and he finds one more person, And he says, will you come and I'll pay you a talent for your work. And so the end of the day comes, and the owner is getting ready to hand out the money to his workers that day. And he pays the guy who came in for an hour, and he pays him a talent. And so the guy who had been working all day, he's probably thinking, right? You would probably be thinking the same thing is, oh, if he paid him a talent, surely he's going to pay me more because I worked all day. And he pays everyone a talent. And he gets to this last guy, and the last guy cannot believe that this man would not pay him more than he paid the guy who only worked an hour. 
seems unjust, right? Now, we know this is a picture of God's grace in our lives because if you have been saved and sanctified in Christ from the time you were a child, that is a good thing. We don't want the testimony. We don't want the story that we were down and out. We were laden with drugs, bonded in sin, and that by a miracle of God, which were all miracles, that we were saved. That is not a story we desire. That is some people's stories. But I long for my children to know and, and, and experience the grace of God their entire lives. And so some of us may get to that day and be like, I can't believe you're here. How did you get what I get? But the thing is, we don't deserve it at all. In this man, in this parable, the owner calls him friend. And the word here, friend, is like an adversary, someone that pretends to be a friend, and Jesus calls him friend. And I think they knew what was happening. And so Judas played his part, and he betrayed Jesus into the hands of the chief priests and the guards. Step one into a world seeming spiraling out of control. This is Judas. Now, I want you to go back to those verses, um, and I'm going to highlight them for you. I want you to highlight them right in your Bible. Underline them. Bring a highlighter and do this, because this is important. Verse 53, after Peter pulled out his sword, and Jesus says, you're going to die by the sword if you live by the sword. He says this in verse 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus was in control. At his word, he could call down 12,000 angels. And if you know anything about angels in the Bible, when they come upon you, do you know what the response of us would be, of the people in Scripture are? Every time they fall down in fear and trembling. Angels meant serious business, and Jesus had them at his word. But this, verse 54, highlight this one. This is what he says. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And then we can jump down to verse 56. Again, they come to him at night trying to seize him, and he's like, I've been with you this whole time. I've never once caused you any trouble. I've taught in your synagogues. I've healed people in the streets. Everyone knows where I'm at. There's a reason they were coming in the dark of night. There's a reason Judas brought them in the dark of night. But verse 56, he says this, underline this. But all this has taken place, what? That the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. There's a plan here, and it's being unraveled before their eyes. And no one knew it but Jesus, and he keeps going back to this. Let's move on to the next group. This is Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas was the high priest. Each year they elected a high priest, and Caiaphas, his father-in-law, was the high priest previously before him. He was installed by the Roman government and the Jewish people, and now he was the supreme leader of the Jewish people. When they had a problem, they had a council, he was the guy who sat on the judgment seat. Let's read in verse 57 with me. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Now check this out. Highlight, underline this. And Peter was following him at a distance. 
as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And here's how far Peter went. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. We'll get to Peter in a minute, but let's continue to read through this unfolding. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now what we see here in this next section is we see a bunch of illegal things happening. I briefly mentioned that they came in the dark of night to seize Jesus, to lay hands on him, because if they did it in the daytime, it would have been a riot. And so they're working in the dark of night. This is a clandestine mission. This is a Navy SEALs mission. And they grab him and they seize him, and they run him up to the house of, the, of Caiaphas. And this is where the Jewish court would sit. sit. All the leaders would come Um, of all the Jewish leaders, and they would pronounce judgment. And did you catch what was happening? They tried to catch Jesus in something that he did that that, that they could use as an excuse. And what did it say? They brought many false witnesses. See, some of the things that were happening here is, one, the Jewish high court wasn't allowed to meet after dark. Check. You're supposed to bring more than... Two witnesses. They didn't have that. They had false witnesses and false testimony. Check. They weren't supposed to meet before a Sabbath or a holy festival. It was Passover and Sabbath. Check. And they were never to pronounce the penalty of death until daytime the next day. Check. You see, the odds seem to be stacked against Jesus. And all of Caiaphas and the Jewish council did everything they could to bring false testimony against Jesus because they hated the man so much. Jesus was in control. Let's move on to the next section. Verse 69. This has to deal with Peter. Now remember that He snuck alongside the guards, and he was with them, peering in to see. He was curious. All his last three and a half years he spent with Christ, is it all going to come crumbling down? Because he just, the Holy Spirit had not revealed to him all that was going to happen. And so he's curious. And we know that during the, the Last Supper, 
Jesus even told him, because they all were, when he said, one of you will deny me. And they all pipe up, said, not me, Lord, not me. You ever do that? And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, this very night, you'll deny me three times. Not once, not twice, three times before the rooster crows. Peter's curious. He follows along with the guards. He's so close. He's peering in. And we pick it up in verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them. He denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. One. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Twice. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out bitterly. Now the interesting thing is if you roll over to Luke chapter 22, you'll see Luke's account, because see, here's the beauty. Some people will deny that Scripture actually contradicts itself, or they'll actually tell you this. Um, But here's the thing. If you and I are a part of an event, and we record the event, although there may be many similarities to that event, it's probably going to differ, and you're probably going to put in details that I left out, and I'll probably put in details that you left out. In fact, if Christine and I were telling you the same story, mine would be really short with Holly, just like the umph, and she would have detail after detail after detail. It doesn't negate the point of the story. But what we see is we see the personalities of these men who are inspired by the Holy Spirit to experience this and write the Word of God. And here's what Luke records. Luke chapter 22, verse 61. This is right after Jesus says, I do not know the man. I don't know what you're talking about for the third time. And here's what Luke records. And the Lord turned and he looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. I imagine Jesus at the Last Supper looked at Peter when he says, I will never deny you. And he's looking at Peter saying, no, no, you will. In fact, you'll deny me three times this very night. And then Peter follows the entourage and he's looking in at this illegal court that's happening, this kangaroo court, their minds were already made up. They had forsaken that this could actually be the Messiah. And Peter is with the guards and he's peering in and he's seeing this happen. And he sees them seize Jesus and hit Jesus and spit on Jesus and slap Jesus and saying, prophesy, who is it that hits you? And Peter's denying Christ at the same moment And Jesus locks eyes with them. You ever let somebody down? You ever know that you let somebody down and you you fear meeting with them because you know that you done messed up? 
And take that and multiply it by a hundred, by a thousand. Because Peter was the rock on which Jesus would build the church. He was the apostle of the apostles. He was the leader of the leaders. He was the guy. And he catches Jesus' eyes, and Peter walks away, and he weeps bitterly. It's not spiraling out of control. The one who could call down legions of angels was in full control, and he knew what was about to happen. Let's continue on to our next characters in the story, Pilate and Herod. Now, Matthew's account only records Pilate's account. Luke records Pilate and Herod, and it's a brief encounter. In fact, these guys were kind of enemies. They kind of didn't really care for each other. You know a power struggle? And you're, both of you want power? This doesn't exist in our country. One moment you can be enemies because you're fighting for control and for power, and you'll slander, you'll say false testimony, you will lie, you will give false promises, you will do all that you can to gain power, and that's what was happening. But Jesus has a unique place in this. So let's pick up what Pilate does. So this kangaroo court happens. Peter denies Christ. Verse, chapter 27, verse 1 says this, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Now, I'm going to pass this next section. This is about Judas feeling remorse and guilt and throwing the money back at the Jewish council. Um, and then he goes and he takes care of himself. And they take that money because it's blood money, which came out of their treasury. And they purchase a field, which is prophesied in Zechariah chapter 11. That was Judas's fate. Jump down to verse 11 in chapter 27. Now Jesus, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Here's Jesus again. He says, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. On a side note, I wonder how much, if we, how much more people would be amazed if we talked less. I wonder how better our relationships would be in our marriages when the accusations come. Instead of defending our pride, or our own self-righteousness. We just listen. I think it would be better. And so Pilate is amazed because he is bringing charges and charges against Jesus. And Jesus does not defend himself. You know why? Jesus was in control. Now in Luke, his account talks about how he finds out that Jesus is from, from Galilee, and you know that, oh, Herod, you know, he kind of oversees that area. And so what Pilate wants to do is he wants to shuck off responsibility and say, you know what, this isn't going the way I planned. You know what, why don't you go see Herod? 
Because you're from Galilee, that's his section, that's his territory. And so they send Jesus to Herod, and Herod's in town at that moment. And they bring him before Herod, and Herod was greatly pleased to see Jesus because he had heard a lot about the God-man. And you know what Jesus did? Because these two were enemies, but they were unified on one thing. They didn't know what to do with Jesus. And Luke records that day, those two men became friends. And so Herod shucks off the responsibility back to Pilate and says, I found nothing wrong with him. I just wanted to see the man. And he sends him back to Pilate. And now it's Pilate's problem. Now here's the thing about Pilate. Pilate was a coward. Pilate wanted control. And what would happen is Rome had control of all the Middle Eastern area. And what we're going to get to in a minute, our last character, is you see many people bucking up against Rome. Rome suppressed them. Rome basically made them indentured servants. And they were fighting against Rome in every possible way. And they hated Rome. And so you would have these people that would rise up and fight against them. And Pilate was already dealing with this. He was already dealing with squelching these riots in Jerusalem. And he knows that if he doesn't take care of the problem, then Caesar's going to remove him. And it'll be his head on a plaque. And so there's no way that he's going to let a riot ensue. And so here we pick up what happens next in verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. This is our last guy. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want to release for me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his, his wife sent word to him. Guys, listen to your wives. When they have that intuition, they have that feeling, that discernment, and they say, I don't think this is right, listen to them. One time I bought a truck. Didn't even make it home before the engine blew up. My wife said, I had a bad feeling about that truck. <laughs> Why didn't you tell me? Pilate's wife had a bad feeling. In verse 19, it says, Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified and he said, why, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Barabbas and Jesus. The, the name Barabbas is two words, and they mean this. Bar means son, and Abba means you want to know what his name actually meant? It meant son of the father. And on this side, we have who? Son of the father. 
On this side, we have an insurrectionist. We have a zealot. We have a murderer. We have a robber. We have someone worthy of the death penalty in this culture. Who do we have on this side? The one who says, you've heard it said, don't have anger towards your brother, but I say, love your enemy. We have the one who submitted fully to the Father in heaven, even to the point of death, humbled himself. We have two different people here, two different sons of the Father. And yet, who do the people want? Pilate himself even knows that Jesus is innocent. And the coward in him says, I just want to squash this uprising, and I'll do whatever it takes, and so I'll even exchange this one for the other. It seems like all things are out of control, don't they? Can I encourage you that God is fully in control now, today, and forever? This is greatly encouraging to you. You know why? Because even on your worst day, God can redeem it. Even the heartache you you carry in this life, one day will be redeemed. Like, none of this is is a surprise. In fact, there is a dangerous theology in the church today, and it's called open theism. Theism means God. And open means that God doesn't necessarily know the future. Can I tell you that is a dangerous theology? If God truly is God, he knows all things. He even knows the future. He knows your very life. He knows every choice you will ever make. If we look through Scripture, we see how God has acted even in the wickedness of this world. We know that God used Pharaoh as his instrument to redeem his people and bring them through into the promised land. But Pharaoh himself could not stop God's plan. A couple scriptures to encourage you. Ephesians 1, 9 through 11 says this, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, catch this, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God knows. God knows the future. He is ordaining things in this world for his glory and his purpose. And sometimes we think, oh, but I can surely mess it up. Well, let me encourage you in this. Psalm 115, 3 says this, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Or Psalm 135, 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth and in the seas and in all deeps. Proverbs 16, 4 says this, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Hard, isn't it? 
And then Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. God is in control, guys. He's in control of our government. He's in control of governments around this world. And he's even in control of your very life. He's overseeing it. He is redeeming the things in your life. He is bringing you closer to him. And if you don't believe me, we look at this story and think, this is just out of control. And it's just amazing how all these pieces fell in place. What a great coincidence. Well, I'm going to take you to Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Let's go to Acts chapter 3. This is verses 17 and 18. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. God's in control. He has a plan. He has a purpose. Do you know how many prophecies Jesus fulfilled? 351 at this moment. <laughs> there are some future promises yet to be fulfilled, but that's only going to come when he returns. 351. You may say, well, that's a lot. It doesn't sound like, um, you know, maybe you were thinking like 2,000. Do you know that for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, the odds of that happening... And did you control where you were born? I mean, some of us wish we were born in other cities, right? I was born in St. Louis. My older sister was born in Granite City. And my oldest sister was born in Grand Forks, North Dakota. All three different states. We couldn't have planned that or asked for that. We had no choice in the matter. Jesus had no choice except for he did because he's God. And he had a plan. For him to be born in Bethlehem, one in 300,000. And you might say, that's pretty good odds. That's not too bad. I mean, talking about odds and these prophecies, this is a perfect time, right? March Madness is going on, and all the brackets are busted. There was a, a university, and the professor decided to do a study with his students. And he wanted to look at all the prophecies of Jesus and how many, how many have been fulfilled, and now what percentage would it take for him to have fulfilled all of these? Well, they started doing the math, and they just couldn't get it all together. And they were even looking at conservative numbers. And so they kept whittling it down, and they got to eight. What is the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies in the Old Testament? What would those odds be? You want to know what those odds were? One, uh, 10 to the 17th power. One in 10 to the 17th power. You take a 10 and you add 17 zeros. That is the odds of eight prophecies being fulfilled. Why do I share that? 
Because we see in Scripture that God has a plan. He has a purpose. He doesn't make mistakes. He knows the future. That should give you hope, that he knows your future. That he knows what's going to happen in the United States of America this time next year. Did you think you would be sitting here last year? Because you weren't sitting here. See, our hope is not in chariots or men. Our hope is in the Lord. And let me share with you one more verse out of Acts chapter 4. The believers are praying for boldness. They're facing persecution. They're wanting to tell people about Christ. And they're feeling the crunch. In Acts chapter 4, verse 25, Luke records that they are quoting the Old Testament. He says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, said this long ago, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. I wonder who were those rulers? Could it be Rome? Could it be Pilate? Could it be Herod? And who did they set their judgment against? The anointed, the same word for Messiah, Jesus. And then verse 27 says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Okay, this is everybody. Everybody against Jesus. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God had a plan. He was in full control. This was his moment. Two things I want you to see this morning. I want you to hold on to this truth that God knows. That he is in full control. And he did this because this was the only way for him to shower his grace upon you and bring you into his presence. Because here's the thing, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve the grace of God. We don't deserve it. There's nothing we do that can earn it. Your best day ever could not earn the grace of God. You still stand in judgment of him. But Jesus took your place. And we see this with Barabbas. So two things. One, God is in control. He has a plan and a purpose, not just for your life, but for this world. Let's trust him. And then the second thing is this. We are Barabbas. If I'm going to relate to anyone in this story, it's him. I know the thoughts that run through the gray matter in this brain space. And it ain't pretty. It's only by the work of the Holy Spirit renewing my mind daily, giving me the faith to trust in him, because this mind on its own is stuck in its flesh, and we are Barabbas. Did you catch when we read through Barabbas' story how he was up there? He is this murderer, insurrectionist, robber, thief. He deserves to die. Have you ever wondered what Barabbas was thinking at that point? When this judgment took place, well, I'll give you Jesus and I'll set free Barabbas. Have you ever seen Green Mile or Dead Man Walking? You've seen these movies? Not that I'm encouraging you to watch these, but these movies are about the death penalty. 
these men that sit on death row waiting to be executed. There is no hope. Their only hope is to get right with their maker because they know judgment's coming. This was Barabbas. This was you and I. Barabbas was sitting on death row in a Roman prison and certainly aware that he could be killed any day. There was not a clear or straightforward process of parole or further appeals for him to count on. Prisoners didn't have any rights. It was over. There was no hope. He was a murderer who deserved death, and deep down he probably knew it. Each passing day was one day closer to certain death. I can imagine he was thinking, how the flogging will hurt? How much mocking will I take place? How will I die? And then the day comes, and he can hear the shouts ringing throughout the courtyard, crucify him, crucify him. Maybe he was thinking about himself. Those are cheers for me. The guards open the door to his cell, and they drag him outside, and then something amazing happens. Everyone is celebrating his freedom. His chains are released and he is set free. The murderer is released. Put yourself in his shoes, in his sandals for a minute. You're walking to your death in chains and then all of a sudden when you least expect it, you're free. Then you hear the words again, crucify him, crucify him, and you see another walking by. Those those chants are not for you. The guards are dragging another man to his death. Jesus. He's beaten and flogged and is forced to carry his cross to his death. It's the very cross you had imagined you would be carrying. You think to yourself, that's my death. He's dying. Barabbas is the one person in history who could say that Jesus literally carried his cross. Jesus took his death and Barabbas Barabbas was given the freedom Jesus deserved. Jesus bore the guilt and shame and curse and disgrace and death that Barabbas deserved, and Barabbas received the release, the freedom, and the life that Jesus deserved. One rules by taking the lives of others, and the other rules by giving his own life. One wants to overthrow the king, and the other is the rightful king of the people. One is guilty and will be set free, and the other is an innocent man who is about to be killed. The real son of the father, who is innocent, will go to his death. They freed the wrong son. Jesus literally took Barabbas' punishment for himself. He even marched to, to death as Barabbas would have. He marched willingly and quietly, and yet wasn't because he had lost. Jesus was not outsmarted by his opponents. He was not a mistake or an accident. It was not plan B in God's eternal plan of salvation, The crucifixion of the innocent lamb of God was God's plan from eternity past. The Jews chose the wrong man, but the Lord put forward the right one. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the good news that gives you and I, even in Christ, hope every day. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. 
Martin Luther called this the great exchange. You and I are sinners. We sit in spiritual prison, bound, helpless, awaiting the day when we will receive the punishment we deserve. We sit on death row, of all death rows, waiting to be dragged out to death, not knowing when God's righteous judgment will come down. But the good news is that when you repent of your sin and trust in Christ, he saves you. Jesus goes to the cross in your place. He gets what you deserve. You get what he deserves. It is the greatest exchange in all of history. Jesus gives up his life so that you can have life. I'm going to ask the band to come forward, come up. and We're going to move into a time of worship and continue to worship into a time of remembering this good news. Like, we are good news carriers. You need good news. You need to know that there is a God who loves you, even in your darkest day, and that you deserve what Barabbas should have got. Yet what did you get? You got Jesus' very life. Like, friends, this is why it's so important. This is why a life in Christ is so important, because it's not about what you do. It's about who you put your faith in. It's about who you love. This is important because this is why we gather one day a week as the church. You are the bride of Christ whom he bought with his blood, a very costly price. This was his plan. Whether or not I, was in I would ever be in ministry, I have always been a part of the church. My children will always be a part of the church. This isn't an add-on. This isn't an accessory. This isn't something if we can fit into our schedule. This is important stuff because we need to be reminded that Jesus took our place and he loved us. That is motivation. That is help. That is God's grace in our life to live these lives for him. I don't want my kids thinking anything else is more important than Jesus Christ. Have you walked down that hallway? Have you looked in those classrooms? Easter Sunday, you're going to get that chance. Do you know why we're pouring into that? It's because we want our kids to know Christ and experience him. Do you know why we offer classes on Sunday and Wednesday nights? Because we want you to grow in Christ. Because we want you not to know more about him, but in knowing more about him, your affections, your love for him grow, and you, you want to love him. You want to be here. You want to serve. You want to live generously. You want to treat others the way that Christ treated you. Jesus picks you up from the gutter and he puts you at his table and he cleans you up and he does it all and he invites you to join him. This is what he's calling us to do. This is the story of this leading to the cross. All these characters, all these people were God's instruments to fulfill his plan and his plan was to invite you into relationship with him. What a good God we serve. Christianity is the only religion that teaches this. This is the only religion that teaches this. Every other religion says it's what you do. You're putting hope in yourself. This morning we put hope in Christ. Would you pray with me? 
Let's ask God to become the center of our lives. God, thank you for reminding us this morning of the gospel, of the good news. Lord, the hope that we have in you, that we know that you have a plan, that you are in control, that you redeem our worst moments and you give us joy in our greatest moments. Lord, all for your glory. I pray that you would just move in us this morning. God, renew a spirit in us that loves you, that desires you, that sees people the way you see them. And above all else, God, help us be overjoyed by your love for us in Jesus.